Welcome to episode two of the Cross-Gen Life podcast. I'm Dr. Rich Malheim, recording this on a hot and humid summer day, hidden away in a secret lakeside log cabin somewhere in southern Minnesota. In the episodes ahead, the Cross-Gen Life podcast will bring you thought leaders and systems change pioneers, movers and shakers and systems breakers from across the church and society, working to connect the wisdom of the elder and the wonder of the child in the same sacred space each week. Today's episode is part two of a six-part series. The topic is Disruptive Change and the Exodus Today. It features Dr. David Lowe's, founder of WorkingPreacher.org, former seminary president at Lutheran School of Theology at Philadelphia, and currently senior pastor at Mount Olivet Lutheran Church in Minneapolis. David's talk was recorded live at a recent Cross-Gen Life conference in Estes Park, Colorado. You can find more about our upcoming October 2018 conference at crossgenconference.com. Here's part one with Dr. David Lowe's. Another story. My parents are out visiting. It didn't happen that often. They were already getting to that point where travel's a little difficult. We'd see them once or twice a year, but they were out uh, for a time. And, uh, and just before they left after this visit, now my kids are about uh, seven and nine at the time. Um, my dad tells them a story about when he was growing up. And when he was their age, so he's uh, eight years old, grew up in Sunbury, Pennsylvania, on the banks of the Susquehanna. They had what they named at the time the flood of the century, where after a hurricane, the Susquehanna flooded. They lived uh, in town uh, quite a distance, um, but the rivers over exceeded the banks so greatly that the whole town was flooded and the streets became rivers. And my dad was telling them about what it was like to be stuck in this flood and being on the second story of his parents' home looking out their second-story bedroom window onto streets that had now become a river and seeing coming down the river two boats. Out front was a canoe, and further back was this big rowboat. Uh, And in the canoe, there was one guy paddling, and he was looking at scanning both sides of the street, and when he saw my dad and his parents leaning out the bedroom window, he turned over his shoulder uh, and shouted back to the rowboat behind him, Two big ones, one little one. Two big ones, one little one. And then he kept paddling, looking for other people that were stranded, and the rowboat came up and got my dad and his parents out and and took them to safety. So they really, uh, really appreciated that story. I have asked to hear it told a number of times since then. But the next time they asked it told, so my parents had gone home. A little later in the summer, um, we had a tornado warning. Uh, not uncommon uh, in the upper Midwest. We went down into our basement with no windows, left the door open. There was a television in the background kind of narrating the progress of the storm so we knew it was safe to come out. Um, And in the middle of that, um, one of the kids says, Dad, tell us a story about Grandpa and the flood. Now, they liked that story in part, of course, because it helped connect them to their grandfather. They'd only ever known him as an older man. And so to hear a story about his growing up in a world pretty different from their own uh, was a way of connection. But at that moment, it wasn't about connecting. It was about hope. It was a story about providence. It was a story about even in the midst of tragedy or calamity, yet God provides. Dad, tell us a story about Grandpa and the Flood. 
Now, it occurred to me I could have told them that we live in a metro area, and because of the heat patterns of metro areas, hurricanes and, and, or tornadoes rather usually move around, that the likelihood of coming in, none of that would have helped. <laughs> none of that would have helped. Dad, tell a story about Grandpa and the flood. The stories create hope. And the fourth thing they do is that, that stories uh, share truth that is under, otherwise unavailable. Kind of already alluded to that with the Harriet Beecher Stowe story. It, 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 it conveyed a truth that people that were well acquainted with the facts um, yet were moved to a different level of commitment because they sensed a narrative truth that was more, power, more powerful and more compelling. You know, I think it's really interesting. Uh, our Declaration of Independence begins with Thomas Jefferson writing, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Now, self-evident, of course, means that these are truths that are so true, you don't actually have to prove them to anyone. They're completely evident to anyone with a rational mind who's looking at them. Yet, interestingly, those truths that Jefferson claims do not have to be proven because they're self-evident, conveniently, they're truths that cannot be proven. All you can do is claim their self. I mean, it, honestly, if the truth of the matter between the colonies and, and, and uh, the British Empire had been something that you could demonstrate by facts, they would have had an American science fair, <laughs> not an American revolution. <laughs> they fought because it was a contested truth. And yet it was the stories of what freedom meant that continue to motivate us. It's the stories we hear, it's the stories we receive, it's the stories we share that lead us to commit ourselves to ventures well beyond our ability to prove them. Um, the, the, the war that Lincoln referenced, uh, it's something that the abhorrence of slavery that we simply take for granted. And yet for most of Western history, that would have been the minority report. That was just assumed a part of the natural order that some people are inherently superior to others, whether by race or ethnicity or gender, and it's okay to, and that we find that whole scheme unbelievably alien. Uh, and yet, for the bulk of history, it was the assumed narrative, and so it took another narrative to offer a competing, contesting truth. Uh, and because of the, the, the winsomeness and the compellingness and the, of that story, people gave themselves uh, to it. Um, and it's this capacity of stories to speak truth that I think we've forgotten. It's not that we don't know because we will get together at family reunions or gatherings like this and we'll share stories and we'll leave and we'll know that we're caught up in something holy, something truthful. And yet when we go about our day-to-day -day lives, there's a way in which um, truth as fact, truth as something you can prove, uh, has been so uh, overwhelmingly successful in a really good way, right? This is kind of post-enlightenment. We've gained a lot from our desire to have facts and to prove things and to establish things rationally. I mean, medicine and republican democracy and technology, we, we've benefited a lot from a strong sense of truthfulness being about something that is rationally verifiable. But in some ways, it's been so successful that when we talk about truth, it's as if we imagine that's all, that, that's all there is. And so what I, one of the things I think we need to do for our people is, is rekindle their imagination of the truthfulness that escapes rational verifiability, that, that lies beyond our reason, and yet is the very kind of truth that shapes and changes uh, and saves our lives. 
So to get at that, what I want to do is do a little bit of, of an exercise, actually two brief exercises uh, on truth-telling. And this is something that you can take to your congregations in education, in worship, and preaching in a variety of venues. It doesn't take that long, uh, and yet it heightens the power of, of just what we're talking about. So first exercise, you need one or two people around you. Um, and what I'd like you to do is I would like you to share five facts about yourself that are verifiable, right? So it can be your height, it can be the first job you held, it can be the color of your eyes, it can be the town you were born in, it can be um, as benign as the name of your first pet, as controversial as your political party, or even your weight. Now, I said we could verify them. I didn't say we would verify them. So all I want you to do, it'll take like a two minutes max, is share five facts with two people near you. Go. All right, are we good? Right, real quick, just five facts. First couple times I did this, I always assumed when people were done the exercise, they would stop talking. <laughs> so now I've learned to just interrupt. All right, so first exercise, really simple, five facts about yourself that could be verified. Now, uh, second one is uh, a little more challenging, and it will take, not more challenging, it will take a little longer. So you're going to need to be somewhat disciplined uh, because I, what I want you to do is, is to tell a story about yourself with someone else. Now, when I say tell a story, some people kind of immediately freeze. I'm not talking like Garrison Keillor story. I'm talking about the kind of stories you tell all the time, just an antidote. And to help, I'm going to give you two prompts, and you can choose either one of them, okay? One, uh, tell a story about when you saw your church in the last 12 months be church in a way that just swelled your heart. One time you just, it was like, yeah, this is what we're here for, right? Or two, just coming off of summer, uh, share a memory from this past summer that you're going to take with you for a while. Uh, an experience, a vacation, uh, uh, some time with a friend. Uh, so one of those two prompts, just, a, and, and keep it to like a minute and a half. So we're really talking anecdote here. Um, a, a memory in the last year or so when church was just church in the way it was supposed to be or a memory from the summer you're going to carry with you, okay? Give a little more time, but then I'll call you back. Go.
That's really interesting. Yeah. So how are we doing? Are we close? Folks have had a chance to share and hear each other's stories. Okay. Um, so one thing before I, I kind of go to the end of this exercise, uh, I've done this dozens of times, and I've never noticed this. And, and Rich pointed this out. I think this is really one of your gifts, Rich, just to notice things that a lot of us don't see. Um, but Rich came up and, and whispered. He said, did, did you notice how in the first exercise they could just sit and tell each other five facts, and in this one they can't help but express themselves? Right? Isn't that interesting? That story calls out our whole body. It calls our whole being into the process because we're sharing ourselves. Um, thank you. So two exercises with talking about the truth. One related to facts, five facts that we were able to share with each other that we could verify. Uh, one story. Now, stories take longer, right? They, that they take longer to, to tell. But it was five facts and only one story. But my question is really very simple. Of those two exercises in telling the truth, in which of them did you feel you learned more of the truth about the people in which you were with conversation? to the story. Right? Story just draws us into a deeper level of things that are true and we can't even perceive if we don't narrate them. So I want to move then to this biblical story. It's, uh, it's a story from the Exodus, about the Exodus, about the pinnacle of the Exodus, but it's told at a distance from. So we're, we're back in Deuteronomy, as Rich mentioned earlier. This is the the story of, of Moses leading the people into the promised land and just before they're going to cross over the, the river um, 
after decades of, of moving toward this, this way, he begins to, to share stories and to share himself. And in some ways, Deuteronomy is in a sense a collection of the last sermons of Moses to his community because he will not go with them, but he wants to arm them um, with the laws and the ordinances and more than anything else with the stories of Israel. So, um, so it's Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 5, as Moses is about to start this kind of series of sermons. Um, just to remind you a little bit, I know you know this, but to set it in context. Uh, and by the way, anytime you're working with, with scriptural stories, take a minute to do that. Whether it's confirmation or in worship or Bible study, we tend to dole out scripture in snippets. And it's really hard to form a narrative imagination in snippets. And it doesn't take long to set it into context. So I'll just remind you, Deuteronomy is, is, is this interesting, in some ways, odd kind of book, uh, challenging to read. At its heart, in its very name, is, is what it is. So Deuteronomy, the name is made up of two words. Deutero, second, a second time. Nomos, the, the Greek word for law. This is a second telling of the law, a second sharing of the giving of the law. Um, the first one is what's told in Exodus. It's the story we know better because of Charlton Heston and Prince of Egypt and what was that god-awful movie that just came out? No, the gods of, yeah, the Christian Bale. Oh, man. Like, anyway, anyway, that didn't help anyone. Uh, but we know the first one better, but this is, this is the second telling. And, and the story in Exodus, of course, it's taken them a long time to get to where they are in Deuteronomy. Because after the leading them out of Egypt and, and through the parting waters and, and receiving the word of Mount Sinai, a lot of things go wrong, right? The first thing that goes wrong, Moses is up on the, on the mountain for a long time with God, and the people begin to get insecure and nervous and, and wish they were back in Egypt. And, and they begin, you know, I don't even, I'm just going to sum it up with, we're going to call it the golden calf incident. <laughs> Mistakes were made. <laughs> they get over that. They move on. They move to the edge of the promised land, about to receive their inheritance, uh, and they send spies out into the land ahead of them, ten spies. And the spies come back, and they say, now this is not verbatim. We're playing with Scripture. You get to, you get to summarize things. Uh, they say more or less, we've got good news and bad news. <laughs> the good news is it really is a beautiful land filled with milk and honey. The Lord was not kidding. It is there, and it's gorgeous. The bad news is there are already people there, and they are big. <laughs> right? This is what they say. There are giants in the land, uh, and eight of the ten spies are like, we do not think this is a very good idea. Joshua and Caleb do. They urge the people, but the people are swayed by the eight, and they begin to moan and groan, as is typical of the Israelites, and they say, we don't want to go. Then God gets involved in the story, and God says, again, not verbatim, <laughs> God says, uh, you don't want to go to the people in, into the land of the promised land? Fine, you're not going to go into the promised land. In fact, you are going to wander in this desert for 40 years. This is where the wandering comes from. You're going to wander in the desert for 40 years until every member of this stubborn generation is dead. I will not take you into the promised land. I will take your children and grandchildren, but not you. And that's what happens. Forty years of wandering. They're all dead, except for Moses, who will soon die, Joshua and Caleb, and the descendants of those first Israelites. And it's at this point, then, that Moses begins this lengthy series of sermons. 
and it begins this way in chapter 5 of Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, Moses says, the statutes and ordinances that I am addressing to you today, you shall learn them and observe them diligently. Now the Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. Horeb is just another name for Sinai. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. Not with our ancestors did the Lord make this covenant, but with us who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the fire. Now at that time I was standing between the Lord and you to declare for you the words of the Lord. For you were afraid to go up because of the fire and did not go up the mountain. And the Lord said to you, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And then Moses is off to the races with a recitation of the Ten Commandments. Now, think back to that moment of those two contrasting useful but different kinds of truth. Factual truth that you can rationally verify and narrative truth. Now, when it comes to, to factual truth, to rational truth, my simple question here is, how is Moses doing with describing an accurate factual a characterization of what happened. Now you can say it. Not very well. Right? Because the, they were not there. The Lord their God made a covenant with their ancestors. That was the whole point of the wandering in the wilderness, to wait till the stubborn people died. Moses isn't telling factual truth. He's inviting the people of Israel into a narrative truth that surpasses all of the facts available to them. What is he doing by telling the story? He is bringing a new generation into the story of God and the people of God. That's why we tell stories at church. It's why we tell the biblical stories. It's why we tell our faith stories to bring a new generation again and again into this transformative story that surpasses our imagination and exceeds our grasp of facts to transport us to a reality that would otherwise be absolutely unavailable to us. This is why we tell kids stories. And like I said, children are starved for stories. They cannot get enough of them because stories are the way they stitch together their world. It is the way they create the reality that they will live into, and it is the way we continue to create our reality. A good friend of mine um, named Audrey West, taught for many years uh, at the Lutheran uh, School of Theology in Chicago, taught New Testament, um, and now is kind of a, a teacher at large, uh, living outside of Allentown, PA. Wonderful, uh, if you're ever looking for a, a guest speaker on the New Testament. Audrey tells this story that I just love. So she's out, she's from California originally, she's out visiting her brother uh, and sister-in-law uh, in California, and although Audrey is now a professor of New Testament, her brother went another way, and they don't go to church, and they have two kids around, uh, I think, about five and seven at the time, uh, and they've never been to church. And she's out visiting in the spring, and it's over Easter time, and she persuades her brother and her sister-in-law and the kids to go to Easter service. And the kids are really like, what is that? Um, and so Audrey says, well, Easter's really about this, this story about this guy named Jesus. And so she begins to tell him a little bit about how Jesus was born. Uh, and then it's time for supper. So she breaks, and as they're walking to supper, um, the, her nephew, the seven-year-old, says, and Audrey, th th that can't be the end of the story. What comes next? So after the supper, she begins to tell them more stories about collecting disciples and teaching and preaching and healing people um, and about people beginning to kind of get a little upset with Jesus. 
uh, and it's now close to bedtime, and it's time to go to bed, and, and the, the little boy says again, uh, and Audrey, that, 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 that can't be the end of the story. What, what comes next? And so the next morning at breakfast, begins to tell a little bit more of the story about the opposition to Jesus and the people getting angry with him and upset with him and so angry that they begin to lie about him and have a trial and, and send him to death. Uh, and again, it's, and Audrey, that cannot be the end of the story. What comes next? Uh, and she says, you know what? We're on our way to church. I'll tell you the rest of the story, and then we'll get to hear it together. Children have that deeply narrative imagination. What comes next? And we're telling these stories to invite them, people who have not been there, have not seen the actions of the Lord, into a story that they are now adopted, the way Moses brings a new generation into the story in a powerful way. It's a story about God's faithfulness, how God keeps God's promises to the sixth, seventh, through all the generations. And so what I'd like to do as, as we're going forward, I want to I just close now with just a, a moment or two of silence. And what, what I'd like you to do is think about a story from Scripture that has meaning to you. It doesn't have to be your confirmation verse. <laughs> Might not be. Um, it doesn't have to be a story you've told before. It doesn't have to be kind of a favorite. Just for a moment or two now, give yourself the freedom to think about where you are at this moment in your life, in your career, in your faith journey, in your relationships. And just close your eyes and, and let some of the stories that you know kind of flit above, uh, across the, the screen of, of your imagination uh, and own one of them. Pick a story that means something to you. And we will later in the week uh, play with that story a little bit more and be drawn into the power of narrative and the power of story to usher us into the very presence of God. That was part two of a series of six on disruptive change in the church today. Thanks to Dr. David Lowe's of Mount Olivet Lutheran in Minneapolis. This talk was recorded live at a recent CrossGen Life conference in Estes Park, Colorado. If you'd like to attend a future CrossGen conference, including the one coming up in October, you can find out the latest information at crossgenconference.com. You can also find out more information about Faith5 at faith5.org and about the great CrossGen Life curriculum and resources at faithinc.com, F-A-I-T-H-I-N-K.com. I'm Dr. Rich for the CrossGen Life podcast, reminding you that in CrossGen Life, Every age has gifts we need, and every age has needs we get.